Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. I just want to give a shout out to my good friend Daniel Smith for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to our brand new Patreon at patreon.com slash death, dying, and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. The second of this month's stories is about wisdom teeth. So I thought I'd tell a little true story first about my own wisdom teeth removal to lighten the mood a little bit before the horror. I was, what, 17? It was in the summer before my freshman year of college. My parents had wanted to get it done before it became a problem. See, my wisdom teeth were coming in at an angle growing straight out toward the front of my mouth. And if they weren't removed, they would have started pushing all my other teeth around, like four bullies claiming the playground for their own. So I went in. They showed me to the room, sat me down in the chair, walked through what they were going to do. They'd probably have to break the ones on the bottom apart. Those were the ones that were still buried underneath my gums. My top ones, if I was lucky, would come out whole. Then, they gave me the anesthesia and told me to count backwards from five. I didn't make it to four. I had never been put under before, so I didn't really know what to expect. The completeness of the loss of consciousness was so jarring to me that when they brought me out of it an hour later, I couldn't tell where I was, and I couldn't keep my eyes open. I remember my mom already being in the room, talking to a nurse, and when the nurse noticed my eyes were opening and closing, she told me to keep them open and not to go back to sleep, as if her command could keep me awake. When they'd roused me again, the nurse warned my mom that some people react differently to anesthesia, especially if they'd never been put under before. Some people talk nonsense, and some people react emotionally. I took stock of my already swollen face. I had a white towel clutched in my hands already somehow, but looking down, it was apparent it wouldn't stay white for long. My mom and my nurse helped me to my feet, and I stumbled down the hall, out the door, and into the hot Arizona summer, with this towel clutched to my mouth, desperately trying to keep the bloody drool from running down the front of my chest. My mom showed me to the car, opened the door, and I sat down in the passenger seat. And that's when the thing that the nurse had warned my mom about happened. I exploded into sobs. No reason why. I wasn't in pain. I wasn't distressed. I was honestly still pretty high on the painkillers. But for whatever reason, I just lost it. So there I am, 
sobbing uncontrollably in my mother's car, clutching a bloody rag to my face. My mom hurried to the driver's seat and headed home, while I held the rag not only to catch the blood pouring out of my mouth, but the tears streaming from my eyes. I still laugh about it from time to time. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two stories about blood. In the first, blood stain. A couple contends with a mystery stain in their bedroom. In the second, bad tastes. There's an interesting side effect of a man's wisdom teeth removal. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. blood stain was three feet across and five feet long, roughly the shape of a waxing crescent moon and crimson. It was under our bed, found when we set out to rearrange the room. We were going to move the dresser to the far side near the closet. The bed would go where the dresser had been, and the trunk and side tables would take their places next to and at the foot of the bed respectively. We had only moved in months before. We had set up our bedroom in a way that made the most sense to us, but we'd quickly grown tired of it. I was never a believer in feng shui, or any other geomancy for that matter, but something about the way we had arranged the furniture mentally exhausted me. I didn't know how else to explain it. Just navigating the room sapped my brain. And on an average morning, I woke up more tired than when I had laid down to sleep. Kelly, my wife, had always been far more amicable to the ideas of healing energy and those other hallmarks of new age in this that I so quickly dismissed. She suggested a complete rethinking of our bedroom space with these concepts in mind, and I, being on my desperate last leg, agreed. She wanted to help after all, And even if it was just a placebo in the end, if it helped, it helped. It was still wet, the stain. Soaking. Not even the least bit tacky. Bright and shimmering like it was freshly spilled, not dull and brown like dried blood usually is. We checked ourselves, Kelly and I, to make sure we hadn't bled all night, soaked through the mattress, and stained the floor, but we were clean, and so was the mattress, and if that amount of blood had come from one of us, we'd be dead. We didn't call the police. This was a point of debate between my wife and I. I felt that we should call the police to report the massive amounts of blood. My wife, 
the more level-headed between the two of us, pointed out how that might look, a large bloodstain beneath the bed. It was a good point, and she slowly brought me to her side over a 20-minute discussion. We cleaned up as best we could, but the stain would not come out of the carpet, and it ended up having to be replaced. When we ripped up the carpet and the pad underneath, we found a similar pattern, a stain, roughly in the shape of a crescent moon, in the concrete of the foundation. The carpet was replaced. New carpet, nice carpet, the type your feet sink into and your toes can explore. I loved it. We loved it. It elevated the room. We forgot all about the stain. Until late one night, I was woken up by my wife's scream. I flipped the lamp on to see her standing at the foot of the bed, raising her leg and looking at the bottom of her foot. It was blood red. My heart sank momentarily as I assumed she was hurt, but it became clear it was not her blood. The bloodstain had returned. In the same place, in the same shape, thick and crimson. It had again bubbled up through the concrete and carpet, and when we were done cleaning it up for the second time, we took a moment to think of explanations. A leaky pipe sat on the top of our list. It made the most sense to me. Maybe one of the pipes in the foundation was slowly leaking, and what's more, maybe the water was picking up a bunch of rust on the way up through the concrete and carpet. That would explain the color, too. The plumber we called the next day couldn't find any evidence of a leak. Neither did the one we called the day after, nor the third one the day after that. We didn't replace the carpet this time. Instead, we decided we'd wait to sort the mystery out first. The spot became wet again a week later. We discovered the new liquid in much the same manner, accidentally walking across it and being surprised at the moisture. We cleaned it up for a third time, and then moved our bed and the rest of our belongings out of the bedroom and into the spare room, the one we were making into a nursery for when Kelly became pregnant. We kept the door closed to that master bedroom for the next few years, it became the room we never entered, the room nothing ever left. Who knows how many times that bloodstain came back over the six years we lived in that house. Our son, Nathan, was three when we put the house up for sale, and five when we finally moved. The sticking point was always the master bedroom. Why weren't we using it? And what was with that stain? We ended up tearing the master bedroom down, digging up that part of the foundation and rebuilding. We still don't know what caused it, the stain. But underneath the foundation, in the soil we disturbed, right where the blood appeared and reappeared and appeared again, was a small piece of jawbone and a few tiny human teeth. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, We've got a Patreon now. 
If you'd like to help make the show a little better, go to patreon.com slash deathdyingandotherthings. I waited far too long. Years too long to have my wisdom teeth out. And by the time I did, the dentist had to crack them apart, dig into my gums, and pull out the pieces of tooth one by one. I was out for the procedure, so I was spared that specific unpleasantness, but what I was left with was an intolerably throbbing jaw and four bloody holes in the back of my mouth. Coming to in the dentist's chair, I remember the nurse urging me not to go back to sleep, but feeling the unbearable weight of the waning anesthesia knocking me out anyway. I woke up again with a small plastic box being shaken by my mother's hand, inches from my face. Twenty or so pieces of tooth rattled around in the box with each shake. I tried to focus on those little pieces of bone as they slid from wall to wall of that little plastic container. My eyes moved too fast, trying to keep up with the blurs of off-white, and that motion, combined with the lingering anesthesia, caused me to vomit all over the front of my shirt. The bleeding didn't stop for hours after my mother had taken me to my apartment and hung out for a while, making sure I had everything I needed. But what did I need, honestly? Water to sip on, a couch to lay on, and my favorite DVDs. Not much else I could do. Once the anesthesia had completely worn off, and I had started taking the pain meds the dentist had prescribed, and I was feeling a little better, I hugged her, thanked her, and she left after kissing me on my cheek. I spent the rest of the night on the couch, right where she left me, fading in and out of consciousness, and missing huge chunks of my favorite movies. I had planned to go straight back to work, I was fresh out of school and felt like I needed to constantly make good impressions on my bosses. When I woke up at midnight, though, I knew there was no way I was working the next day. The pain in my jaw had spiked and it had radiated out into my neck and up into my head, causing a migraine. No doubt this was partially a consequence of the meds wearing off, but even when I took some more pills and they kicked in, I still felt that throbbing though it was much easier to ignore. My boss wasn't impressed with my excuse for not coming in, and when he read the email I had typed just after midnight, hopped up on meds, he hit reply and sent me one right back, filled with classic passive-aggressive phrases like I could stay home if I, quote, felt like I really needed to, unquote. I was ravenously hungry come the morning despite having never tasted copper for as long as I had. No matter how many times I rinsed my mouth, the rusty flavor of seeping blood wouldn't leave my tongue. It mixed with everything, the water I drank, the mashed potatoes I placed bit by bit into my mouth, the coffee I sipped despite my dentist's instructions for no hot liquids. The swelling was somehow worse on day two, and the pain, despite the meds, still radiated out from my jaw. My mouth, though no one was around to see it, 
was twisted into a permanent grimace, and more than once I had to shove handfuls of gauze behind my teeth and bite down through a great amount of pain to stop the bleeding that returned and returned again. The seeping blood stopped flowing on day three, when I also returned to work, despite my cheeks still being swollen to twice their normal size. I was running out of meds, too, my dentist's prescription being woefully conservative in its estimate of how many pills I would need. I began cutting them in half to prolong the relief I was receiving. It was the least productive day at work I had ever had. When I got home, I collapsed on the couch and held two bags of frozen peas against my face until I fell asleep. I noticed the clots on day four. Massive and crimson. The clots on the bottom of my jaw were nearly two inches long, soft and flopping out of the bloody holes that used to hold my wisdom teeth. The ones on the top were longer, nearly three inches, hanging loosely from my upper jaw like bloody moss hanging from a tree. I pushed them around with my tongue, poked at them with my finger. They were squishy, disgusting. I considered grabbing them and pulling them out of my mouth one by one, but thought that might set my healing back somewhat. Plus, they were far too slippery to grab. I resigned myself to living with the wormy things flopping around my mouth for the time being, even as they grew, longer and longer each day. It made me gag to think about them, which was almost impossible now due to their size. I was eating solid food for the most part, but these clotted worms would intermingle with my chewed food, putting off the taste. It ruined my appetite regularly. At least I would probably lose weight. Regular inquiries to the dentist assured me that blood clots were normal and that I had to just let them go away on their own. And they would go away on their own. How long? No way to know, but probably not much longer. Could I pull them out or cut them down to size? Absolutely not. Doing anything like that risked opening these wounds in my mouth back up and putting the healing process back to square one. Be patient deal with it, and sooner or later, I'd be fully healed. I'd probably not even notice. I lost the first of the clots only several days later, but I sure noticed. I was brushing my teeth when something, suddenly, was moving in my mouth, flipping around, sliding around my teeth and across my tongue. I spit whatever it was into the sink, and out of the mass of foam, something slithered out. It was three inches long, and colored a deep crimson, and it undulated and squirmed as it crawled across the porcelain. I opened my mouth and looked in the mirror. Inside, only three of the clots remained. Looking down, I was surprised at the speed of this thing that had come out of my mouth. It was already making its way up the side, out of the sink, and onto the bathroom countertop. I grabbed a drinking glass and overturned it on top of the thing, then found it was strong enough to push the heavy glass, and so stacked a few books on it for good measure. I watched it wriggle, struggle against its glass prison, 
and then fall still for a moment. Another small object was suddenly wriggling inside my mouth, and the one under the glass sprung back to life. I scooped the one on the countertop into the glass I also overturned, and then spit the second of these awful creatures to join its partner. The third and fourth followed closely after, and then I had four wriggling worms, four crimson slugs crawling over each other and stretching up to the sides of their glass home and struggling to be free. I put the books back on top of the glass and sat on the toilet, watching in disgust, yes, but also curiosity and interest. They had come from my mouth, these creatures, made of my blood, They started as clots clinging to the back of my jaw. I knew I should probably just kill them, but because of their origin, they felt a little bit like my children, which seems a little silly to say. I had a snake at one point. It didn't last very long. I only owned it for a few weeks before I discovered I didn't quite have the disposition to care for a snake, and so I had to find it a new home. That's neither here nor there, and it doesn't really impact this story, except for the fact that the man I had given the snake to was already covered in the terrarium department, and so I had a terrarium in my back closet. I brought it out and prepared an environment for my new pets by walking around my apartment building and picking up whatever I thought would be good for worms or slugs or whatever they were. I had decided not to kill them, and in fact, had swung further into the feeling of caretaker than I ever had with that snake, and so I wanted the four of them to be comfortable. This thought sent an echo through my head. For some reason, even though these creatures had grown out of the four wounds in my mouth, I associated them with the outside world. The forest, gardens, that sort of thing. What had just occurred to me, though, is that maybe they weren't from the forest. Maybe they were parasites. Maybe they had made their home in my bloodstream, until those gaping, bloody holes were opened in my mouth by my dentist. My stomach turned for a moment at that horrendous thought, but then, for some reason, my heart swelled, and my resolve stiffened, and I carried the bits of nature back to my apartment. I poured the four crimson slugs into the terrarium I had prepared. They immediately took to their surroundings. One climbed a nearby twig and came to rest on the tip of it. A second burrowed into the loose soil. The third and fourth crawled over each other in their hurry to the far end of the cage to a pile of small leaves. They curled up next to each other, pushing the leaves into a nest of sorts, and came to a halt. I watched them for a few minutes, tapped on the glass near them, but they seemed to have fallen asleep or something like it. Over the next few days, I would spray the terrarium down with water, misting the four little critters with a spray bottle. This would get them excited or agitated, I couldn't tell which, but it got them up and moving. They didn't seem to eat, didn't seem to get hungry, but they sure did grow. Over the first week in the terrarium, they doubled in girth and tripled in length, and they started to show individual personalities. The one that slept on the stick, that one was reclusive, and I started to call it Mav, short for Maverick. The two that slept cuddled up together in the bed of leaves, I called Jack and Jill, though I couldn't tell which was which if you held a gun to my head. 
They were always together, anyway, so Jack and Jill worked for the pair. The one that spent so much time in the soil, I simply called dirt. They stopped growing roughly a month later, at around six inches long and three around each. And it became... not weird. They started to feel just like any other pet. Pets I didn't have to feed for some reason, and who only required a daily moistening. But I knew people that kept snakes and lizards and tarantulas. Were mouth slugs that much different from those? I didn't think so. I found three cocoons hanging in the terrarium not long after they reached full size. Three cocoons roughly the size that Jack and Jill and Dirt and Mav were when they stopped growing. That left a fourth, though, and I found one of them. One of those crimson slugs, lifeless and dried out like an earthworm that got stuck on the sidewalk after a rain. And I felt deep sadness. I didn't know which one it was, but I felt the loss in my heart. The cocoons were beautiful. They were deeper than crimson, almost black, with flashes of fiery red shining at certain angles like some infernal beetle carapace. They were all attached fast to the stick that Mav used for a bedroom, each contorted ever so slightly as each of my pets, I assumed, transformed inside. One didn't make it out of the cocoon. Several weeks later, I came to check on the terrarium and found two had busted open. I silently hoped that the two that had survived this long were Jack and Jill, surviving together against all odds. I scanned the cage to find them to witness their new form, to see how big they were now, but there wasn't anything to see. On the top of the terrarium, I saw where the screen had been cut through and pulled back where the two survivors had made their escape once they emerged from their cocoons. I spun around to find them in the room. One was only a few feet from the terrarium on the floor, that being, that creature. Bigger than my fist at this point, it pulled itself across the floor, almost like it was enjoying an afternoon stroll. I bent down and then got to one knee, fascinated by its behavior. Whether it was Mav or Dirt or Jack or Jill, I'd never known any of them to move about so leisurely. I saw that its body was split into too many segments to count, and they undulated as it pulled itself across the floor on its many segmented legs. Its front forelegs split into fingers of some sort near their end. Its head was almost perfectly round and covered in long hairs capped with tiny white orbs. Each hair moved independently, I assumed, to look around. Its tail whipped up and ended in a blade's edge. Its exoskeleton kept the brilliant coloring of those cocoons, deep crimson with reflections of fiery red. I realized too late that the thing on the floor wanted me to become distracted. Something impacted the back of my head, having dropped from its hiding place on the ceiling. The second of the creatures scurried around my head to my face, and when I cried out in surprise, it forced itself into my open mouth. 
its legs and feelers and fingers dashed around my teeth, tongue, and cheeks. I tried to bite into it, but its exoskeleton was far too tough. I felt one of my bicuspids splinter from the effort. The first, the trickster on the carpet, the bait, leapt from the floor and scurried up my torso, joining its deceitful partner. Something split my gums. Then I felt a great pressure and a release as the first of my teeth was pulled. I tried to scream out, but the creature in my mouth muffled my cries. I felt the other one extend long feelers into my nostrils. They snaked into my sinus cavity and into the back of my throat. It cut off my airway and triggered my gag reflex. I vomited, but with nowhere for it to go, I choked. In my final moments of consciousness, I felt something knife through my gums and into my jawbone as these things, whatever they were, tried to return to their birthplace. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both bloodstain and bad tastes, were written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Jawbones and Teeth. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out the other shows, they're absolutely fantastic. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. <laughs>